Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. All right, welcome back everyone. We are now in the question and answer portion of our presentation. Uh, the Lawyers for Employers broadcast workplace reopening during COVID-19. This is our back to school special, going back to work in the child care sector. For those of you who are just joining us, my name is Mike McClellan and I am moderating this question and answer period. This is episode 21A, of our Lawyers for Employers broadcasts. I'm joined by uh, three of my colleagues today and other Lawyers for Employers, Kelsey Orth, Charles Binns, and Christina Tomaino. And here we go, let's jump into our question and answer portion. All right, um, here is one to, to kick us off that is uh, directly related to all of our interest in the child care sector. In child care, we have to wear masks and face shields or safety glasses goggles. However, some staff are mentioning that the face shield, goggles, masks, the PPE are causing some discomfort and even headaches. Can employees be exempted from wearing these? Uh, Christina, I think you were talking to us about masks in our presentation portion. So you want to take the first kick at this one. Absolutely. So I think um, I'll give both a, a general answer and then get more specific in the childcare sector. Uh, so like I said in the main presentation, if an employee is coming to you and saying, uh, I cannot comply with a requirement because of some medical uh, symptom that it's causing me or some difficulty I'm having. So for example, in this case, it's headaches. Uh, as the employer, you want to explore that from an accommodation perspective. Is it simply, you know, the band's a little tight and it's causing some discomfort? Or is there, say, uh, chronic migraines at play uh, or something that would require an accommodation? So everything needs to be assessed contextually. Um, if it's just a little discomfort from the PPE, um, it may be that some adjustments can be made to fit, et cetera. Uh, and then of course, in the childcare sector specifically, as you are all well aware, there are specific requirements uh, that apply to all employees from the public health perspective. So it may be, and I would have to look more closely at the, um, at the latest, and I see Amy has just uh, let us know that if you can maintain a social distance, you do not need to wear a face shield. So there may be some work around there, uh, but it would have to depend on the specific guidance provided by public health. Um, and it may be that if an employee can't wear the appropriate PPE, then they just can't be in the workplace. Uh, and I'll open this up to uh, everyone. Um, what can you identify in, on the fly? What can you identify, and obviously without knowing more, as possible reasonable accommodations to this kind of an issue for an employee? Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in. So, I mean, something like this, whether it's 
um, an issue that's caused by the PPE itself or it's there's some other underlying issue that the PPE is exacerbating and making, um, you know, causing this problem. Um, it could be a number of things. It could be that an employee just, just needs a few more breaks where they can go outside, remove the PPE, and just be free of that for 10, 15 minutes a couple times a day. There may be different types of PPE that you can use. Um, I don't know if we have any football fans there, but the Andy Reid style face mask may be appropriate in some cases as opposed to goggles that right up against your face or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so really it's, it's going to depend on what's causing the problem. So you want to make sure that you're getting, and it's not something that you probably need any medical information before. So if you, if you can just make an arrangement like that at the outset, that works for everyone, generally the best way to go about things. Yeah. And I see Amy's note about a cleaning role because really in childcare, that's probably about the only one that in which you could maintain a safe social distance and not wear some kind of protective PPE that's required by um, by public health. So uh, I think Charles's points are, are well made and, and well taken. Thanks everyone, that was really good. We're gonna move on to our next uh, question now. Um, this is another really good, interesting question. What are employer obligations to provide benefits to employees who are not, who are voluntarily not coming back to work in a unionized environment, particularly if the collective agreement is silent on the issue, uh, in, in assuming that we do have rights to other paid leaves under a collective agreement like parental, maternity, uh, family medical, uh, things of that nature. So I'm, I'm happy to address this because to me it goes to the, the plain language of the collective agreement. <clears throat> um, and we're talking about someone who is, for lack of a better term, chosen not to come back to work. And um, we don't talk about this specific leave, but it only talks about paid leaves or those specific ESA leaves. So there's a difference perhaps between someone who is on the IDEL as opposed to someone who has chosen not to come back to work, right? So someone who's chosen not to come back to work, I don't think you have those obligations and arguably, you know, you're gonna go through those steps from that we talked about in the in the presentation and to determine whether or not you have any obligation to maintain their employment if they are in fact just refusing to return to work. If they qualify for the IDEL on the other hand, um, I think your plain language of the collective agreement is going to inform you and if we're talking about other ESA protected leaves requiring us to maintain benefits, then there's a probably an argument to be made that uh, it should be extended to the IDL. Um, it's gonna depend on, again, uh, the context and the language of the collective agreement. Thanks for that, Kelsey. It can be a tricky time, especially right now, uh, or a tricky task, I should say, uh, when, when we're being confronted with situations that were really never contemplated in a collective agreement before. Um, so, you know, I would say a couple of things on, on that note. There's a general presumption that the employer and the employee bargaining agent will put their, put their mind to any new issues that come up that aren't contemplated in a, in a collective agreement. But failing that, uh, management rights uh, really should carry the day 
so long as, as always, the employer is acting in a manner that is uh, not arbitrary, discriminatory, or in bad faith. So let's move on to an another question here. If an employee is due to return from their pregnancy and parental leave during the pandemic, and due to concerns regarding COVID-19, they are refusing to come back. Uh, is an employee entitled to unilaterally extend their leave? And what is an employer's obligation in this respect? And I'll, I'll open that to any of our panelists. Yeah, so I'll jump in there. So I, th I think this is, it's kind of similar to the previous question that we were, we were looking at. So and, and again, it depends on the situation. So I'm going to assume for the purposes of answering this question that, that the employee's leave has come to an end. So that is that they don't, there's no option to extend it. Um, it's not issues that they're raising a month before they're due back and they're just waiting for it to run out. So we're just going to assume that the leave has come to an end and they're now saying, I'm not coming into work. So in that case, does the employee have this option and does the company continue to pay benefits to this employee? So does the employee have the option um, if there's there's no other leave that they qualify for, there's, they say in the circumstance they don't qualify for any other statutory leave, no collective agreement leave, nothing in the benefits package, then really it's the employer's option whether the employee has this option because otherwise it could be seen as a refusal to report to work. And I'm not necessarily saying that an employer should take that stance. It's These are uncertain times. These are difficult issues. Should always try and work with employees. But unless they can point to some other leave or some other thing that they qualify for that allows them to be out of the workplace and their parental leave has come to an end, then they're expected back at work. And with respect to benefits, uh, same kind of answer. It would, it's, it's not impossible, but it would be highly unlikely that benefits would be owed um, in this case, because usually benefits are tied to, you know, either being actively at work or being on a paid leave or whatever the case may be. So um, if that doesn't apply, then there's not really any other lever for that employee to pull uh, unless it exists somewhere in a contract or something like that. So you likely are not going to be responsible for benefits to an employee in that situation. Thanks for that, Kelsey and Charles. Let's move on to our next question now. And uh, this employer offered a position to a temporarily laid off staff member. It was a different shift and a different function from the pre-leave job, and it's at a different location. It's a split shift and the employee has refused this assignment, even though it's the only assignment that's available to her uh, given her qualifications uh, with this particular child care agency. Uh, the employee has turned it down saying that she doesn't want to travel twice a day for this split shift job. Can this be considered a job abandonment uh, or is there uh, some, some grounds for discipline uh, or otherwise just how would we deal with this? And uh, let's let's start with Christina on this one. Thanks, Mike. Um, so in this case, I would hesitate to call this a job abandonment. I think any one of those changes in the position uh, with respect to the shift, the function, the location, uh, any of those might cause an employee to balk at accepting the role. 
Uh, and I think if it was individually any one of those, um, the reasonableness of refusing would be different. But given that all three are different, I think that there needs to be some balancing here between uh, the employee refusing to return uh, and what the employer can offer. So if instead the employee can agree perhaps to remain on leave pending the ability to be recalled to another position, uh, that may be a better outcome. And my concern is if you take a job abandonment position in this case, uh, what you'll see is a constructive dismissal claim coming back at you. I think that's a good point, Christina. Um, and, and it makes a lot of sense, your analysis. But I also do note that uh, the Employment Standards Act in Ontario, for example, um, basically says that employees won't be entitled to uh, notice of termination or severance pay if that applies if they have turned down an offer of reasonably similar employment. Do you think there's any information that we might need in this case to be able to determine whether we could take a position that's, that this was an offer of reasonably uh, similar alternate employment? So I think we'd wanna know, for example, is there a change in pay? Is there a change in hours? How far is this new location? How different is the, the split shift? Uh, had they accepted split shifts in the past? Was that typical? So I think really uh, we would need to flesh it out some more. But I mean, it, it's, it's quite possible that it could be an offer of reasonable employment. And I think if, for example, um, as the employer you recalled the employee into this position and they said, no, I'm going to claim constructive dismissal instead. Uh, perhaps that's a good defense, but I think if you're actively taking a job abandonment position, there may be some, uh, that may be a complicating factor. I, I, just before we move on to the next question, I was gonna add as well, uh, we need to see the employment agreement, right? To see what is in there about what the person's been hired for and how much leeway or how much flexibility there is from the employer's perspective in terms of where they get where people get assigned and so on and so forth right <clears throat> so um, all great considerations and certainly like everything we've we've said already don't be too hasty let's let's ask some questions it may be it may not be job abandonment but um, we certainly don't want to make that determination without getting some more information thanks kelsey thanks christina uh, you know, something that's been pretty popular in, in, uh, in our kind of back to work arrangements has been working from home options. So we have a question here about work from home. So with respect to your request for accommodation to work from home due to a risk for COVID uh, and the associated medical information requests, uh, we've talked before, uh, Charles, uh, that we can't request a diagnosis. Um, but what happens when we don't get sufficient information and we're presented with just a note that says uh, such and such employee is my patient, they are required to work from home for the foreseeable future. How is an employer supposed to deal with that kind of 
medical information? Yeah, and we, we get these kinds of questions all the time. Um, and the answer can be a little bit frustrating for employers, uh, if I'm being honest. But I think in the current context, uh, a simple note, something like that required to work from home for the foreseeable future, probably en enough to get their foot in the door, uh, assuming that it draws a link between COVID and a vulnerability. However, that doesn't mean that you can't necessarily go right back to the doctor with and request further information. So you can go right back to the doctor and ask, okay, we understand that there's an issue here, we're willing to accept that, but how how long are they going to have to work from home? Is this gonna is this an arrangement that needs to last throughout the entirety of the pandemic? Is this something that's gonna could possibly get better before that happens? And is there any other any other possible way to accommodate this person short of working from home. And then, like I said, where you go from there is gonna kind of depend on the response. But just because you get an initial batch of information doesn't mean that you have to wait two weeks before you try and get more. You can go right back to the doctor immediately and try and get a little bit more information. And then if they come back and you're still not getting enough information, that's when you can start taking further steps. So whether it's, you wouldn't, might not necessarily jump directly to discipline, but make a couple attempts to get the information that you need. And it all, what you're getting there kind of um, shapes what you do, but you don't just have to sit back and accept whatever it is that they pride, particularly on a, 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 an initial basis. Yes, and I wanted to add to that as well. I mean, I think because many child cares were offering um, online or virtual programs during the shutdown and so on. Some employees have seen this as a route to to not come back, but it's also we can equate that to other requests that we see where employees are saying, oh, well, can't work in this room anymore um, because, you know, whether, whether it's um, specific medical related to COVID or other medical employees are kind of becoming more alive to these concerns and getting notes from doctors that rather than identifying restrictions actually just suggest what the specific accommodation should be and that's not that's not at all how the process works as charles outlined so i mean there may not be any work from home that a an ece can do and certainly you know administrative work that they have never done before is not an option either. So challenging these kinds of straightforward statements from doctors is absolutely within our rights as employers. I would say arguably not just within our rights, but an obligation. We're obligated to take part in the accommodation process. And we are, as I see it, we are required to obtain this kind of medical information. Uh, in fact, every time we make a request for medical information we're confirming to the employee and their doctor. Now, this is part of our duty under the Human Rights Code in Ontario as part of the accommodation process to seek out relevant information so we can assess what kind of accommodation is possible in the circumstances. So, so thanks for the, the feedback there, Charles and Kelsey. Uh, here's one that we're, we'll uh, ask Christina to weigh in on. Um, Staff on the infectious disease emergency leave are job protected. However, what if a staff who is on the leave has returned on a kind of on-call or staff replacement basis instead of returning to their full-time duties? And they have been in breach of the policies. So for example, 
public health guidance for COVID and workplace violence and harassment. Are we able to terminate the staff or just continue to write them up and document the staff and have meetings regarding their behavior? There's a couple of issues here. Um, Christina, why don't we start with this? Can you tell us how uh, an employee on infectious disease emergency leave, their employment would be affected if they come back on a partial basis? So if an employee is recalled partially, or even if an employee has never been laid off, but they've had their hours or their earnings reduced as a result of COVID-19, they will still be deemed to be on infectious disease emergency leave. So even though they've been recalled for, say, on-call or, or supply basis, uh, that doesn't strip them of that job-protected leave. So what if, though, the employee uh, is, is asserting a right to the infectious disease emergency leave, uh, we have full-time work for them. And they're saying that they want the infectious disease emergency leave on a part-time basis. It's a bit of a brain teaser there, but is, is that even possible? So I would say no. I think if there is full-time work being offered to the employee and they would prefer to be part-time, there can be an agreement subject to any uh, collective agreement obligations with the employee that they'll be uh, reduced to a part-time schedule. But if the work is available for them, then the job protected leave isn't triggered. I think you're, I think you're right, Christina. If the, if the work is available for them and they would be able to, I think if they would be able to perform the work on a full-time basis, they can't claim the infectious disease emergency leave under Section 51 of the ESA. But I think if there's a COVID reason why they can't take the full-time hours, I think the time that they, they are unable to work, uh, and, and I think this is supported with the Ministry of Labor's Policy and Interpretation Manual now, uh, is considered uh, a leave. So, for example, uh, if somebody's uh, uh, children's school or daycare is closed and they can work a partial day but not the other part of the day due to their uh, child care obligations, uh, my understanding from the Ministry of Labor is that they can kind of do a, a partial infectious disease emergency leave in that limited circumstance. It's a, it's a tricky situation. Hopefully we don't see it very often. I've only seen it uh, once with a client so far. Um, and then, so let, let's take a look at the second part of this question, and I'll, I'll open it to all of the panelists. Uh, if, if somebody who is... Uh, uh, partially away from work or, or working part-time when they would normally be working full-time uh, is violating the, the policies. What are our abilities or responsibilities uh, with respect to their discipline? So I'll just jump in again to start. And Mike, you're absolutely right uh, with respect to an employee who would need to be reduced to part-time for reasons related to COVID. Uh, that's exactly correct, that they would still be entitled to that infectious disease emergency leave. The scenario I was um, alluding to was more along the lines of if it's a preference unrelated to COVID. Um, in terms of the ability to discipline, I think we need some more information than what's in the question. 
of course, as an employer, your obligation to make sure that the workplace is safe is paramount. So that always needs to be taken into consideration. If there are extremely egregious violations of policies, particularly when it comes to workplace violence and harassment or public health, uh, that may be a scenario that gives rise to a for-cause termination. Uh, I would always absolutely recommend that any employer who's going to take a cause position seek legal advice first because it's very difficult to meet that standard. Uh, but just given the policies that have been indicated here, it may be on the table. Um, and then in terms of discipline or termination while someone is on the protected leave, I, I think it's always important for employers to engage in a progressive discipline process um, to make sure that you know, any issues that are in the workplace can be perhaps resolved before resorting to termination. Uh, when it comes to the, the impact of the protected leave, um, I think it, it's going to depend on a case-by-case -case basis whether uh, the misconduct is to the point where as an employer uh, you can't abide by it and need to perhaps take action in spite of the job protected leave. Uh, but my, again, recommendation is to always seek individualized advice on this front. Great. Thanks, Christina. All right. We're going to move away from the unionized setting for this one. We have a non-unionized center, 22 employees and no uh, group benefits. Our staff entitled to vacation days during this time. We get our vacation pay with every check. Another very popular question we've been getting these days uh, from, from all of our clients. Uh, Charles, let's start with you. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, whether and how uh, and, and whether employees must take their vacation uh, during this time? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm not entirely sure whether we're talking about or me, whether this is a question about a, a closed down period or a period where you're open. So I'll just kind of address both. Um, and then not to get too technical, but for non-unionized, um, unless there's something in a, an employment contract or policy, you look at the Employment Standards Act. And the confusing part about this is that the Employment Standard Act treats vacation time differently than it treats vacation pay. Um, so vacation pay is provided on the basis of wages earned at a, you know, a minimum threshold. Um, and then there's different ways that you can pay it. So you say that you pay with every check. As long as you're meeting that minimum vacation pay for wages earned, then you're good. When it comes to vacation time, the um, act requires you to provide, you know, based on um, the level of service that an employee has, a minimum amount of vacation time per year. And then it actually has some requirements about when and how you take that vacation. So, um, there's some employee lawyers may disagree with this, but my position, and then maybe some of my colleagues have um, some other information they want to add to, is that as long as you're providing the minimum amount of vacation for an employee based on their years of service within the vacation year, 
then there may be some wiggle room um, with anything that they have over and above that if they do in terms of scheduling when you take it based on the operational needs um, of the employer. So I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in or add anything to that. Well, I'll say this, that um, an, an employee, uh, for an employee to waive their vacation time, it's not an easy process. There has to be a written agreement between the employee and the employer, and it has to be approved by the Director of Employment Standards in Ontario, which is in fact a real person. So it's not a simple process by any means. And if we don't have that agreement in place, the employee must take their vacation time. And if they don't, it's the employer who has violated the Employment Standards Act. And I think that is why the Employment Standards Act gives an employer the opportunity and the right to schedule an employee's vacation time for them. So um, from my perspective, and, and I think the Employment Standards Act supports this on its face, your employee needs to take their two weeks or three weeks, depending on the length of their service, vacation time within the 10 months that it's earned. If they're entitled to anything beyond that, by all means, you can work out some kind of a carryover or payout arrangement. But in terms of the statutory vacation time, uh, unless you have this arrangement in place with approval from the Ministry of Labor, uh, the employee needs their vacation time. Where it's going to get tricky, though, is if the employer is not permitted to be open, uh, like we saw uh, at, at the outset of the pandemic. Um, hopefully, we, we don't go back to that uh, situation. Um, but that would create a, a novel issue for us to, to try to deal with. Uh, any other thoughts on this, Kelsey or Christina? No, I, I, I'm on board with everything that the two of you <coughs> have said thus far. Okay, so we'll move on to uh, another question. Again, this is, this is common and uh, I think pretty similar to what uh, Kelsey was talking about earlier today. So an employee chooses to keep their child home from school or daycare. The school or daycare is open, but the employee makes the choice to keep them home. Uh, the employee on that basis is not able or willing to come to work. Does the employer have a responsibility to accommodate uh, an absence or a work from home request? Uh, and if so, for how long? Yeah, I'm happy to answer that since I just hadn't muted myself again yet. Um, I think we've we've pretty much covered this as well. I mean, if it's purely a choice, then no, you don't have a responsibility to accommodate that request. People can make their choices and and you know deal with whatever consequences come from that in in their own way and in their own personal lives. Um, but don't necessarily make that decision without asking a couple of questions first, because it's a lot easier to get the information up front than it is to get into some kind of argument or, um, you know, contentious back and forth about whether or not the person might otherwise qualify for one of the leaves. As I think it was Charles who mentioned, employees might not understand the process themselves and they might think, oh, you know what, I'm keeping my kid home. I qualify for that leave I heard about them talking about, uh, you know, back in, in, in the spring and in, in the summer, no problem. But whether they do or don't, they may not even know that up front. And so it's, 
you know, it may not be the case that they ultimately do qualify, but I think it's incumbent upon us as employers to ask the questions first, right? And so if we, um, <clears throat> if it's a matter of an immunocompromised child and they have the caregiving responsibilities or the homeschooling responsibilities, um, as they would if something were closed, then, then maybe they are eligible. But if it's purely a choice and, and that's determined by asking a couple of questions, um, then, then no, we don't have to accommodate that request. Whether you choose to is another question, but again, that's all about fairness and applying your process um, equally to whomever asks the question. Thanks for that, Kelsey. Uh, now for an ever popular quarantine question. Can an employer require an employee to quarantine for 14 days after returning from another province for non-essential travel? such as visiting family at Christmas. Now, this is something that we touched on before with respect to travel outside of Canada in some of our previous uh, webinars, which we absolutely endorse as part of a COVID-19 policy in the workplace. Uh, but, but what do our panelists think about travel uh, within Canada as opposed to outside of Canada? Um, well, I mean, currently there are no restrictions in Ontario with respect to interprovincial travel. So can you impose something yourself as an employer? Is it reasonable to do so? I think you'd be hard pressed to do so unless somebody self-reports as, you know, employees have that obligation to self-report specific contact they may have had or um, any symptoms, but beyond that, and then, sorry, when I say they have that obligation, obviously that's part of your daily screening, um, which is mandatory in Ontario. But uh, absent something like that in terms of a self-report, I don't think you have the ability to unilaterally impose it. Um, could you arrive at a policy whereby you did that? Yes, probably, but there may be some considerations with respect to um, pay and or loss thereof if you were to impose something like that. It's all, you know, I think ultimately there'd be a question of proportionality and uh, I'm not sure that just on the face of this basic question we'd be able to, uh, to justify that kind of um, implementing that kind of restriction or requirement. So, I mean, we know that basically an employer has the right to implement workplace policies, but at all times, those workplace policies have to be uh, reasonable in the circumstances, and they can't be discriminatory, and they can't be uh, instituted or implemented in bad faith. Um, I don't know whether you can, uh, I don't know whether I want to say as a blanket statement, that you can implement this kind of a policy and still be uh, onside the law with respect to uh, an employer's ability to, to implement a workplace policy. You know, it's not impossible to imagine a situation where uh, it would be an appropriate and reasonable policy. I, I kind of struggle to see how it makes, uh, makes the most sense in a childcare uh, setting though. Uh, good, it's a good question though, um, and, and obviously something that we will always have to turn our minds to if it comes up. Let's go for 
let's look at a new new question here. Can someone apply for the SERP if they were only home for 14 days due to self-isolation if sick time has been exhausted? Or is it only if someone has been laid off or not working? Um, we'll address this, but I, I'm going to go back to our common uh, caveat and, and kind of disclaimer. Uh, I am certainly opposed to advising any employees of ours with respect to whether and to what degree they're allowed to apply for CERB or whether they should or whether they're eligible. That's between the employee and the government. Now, my understanding has been that uh, CERB is available for people who cannot work due to COVID reasons uh, so long as they have not met a certain threshold of income. Uh, I'm not aware of there being any uh, distinction between if they have been uh, laid off versus if they are sick. Uh, do any of the panelists want to correct me on that? Yeah, I'll go ahead and jump in, Mike. So I can confirm that if uh, if an employee is home because they're self-isolating, they're quarant in quarantine because of COVID, they would be able to access the CERB. Uh, that said, those benefits do expire as of uh, this Saturday. So October 3rd is the last day that you can access the CERB. There is a new benefit that's being considered now. I believe it's called the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit that would provide an equivalent uh, benefit value for a two-week period uh, for employees who need to be off because they're sick or I believe in isolation. Uh, that has not been officially introduced yet. It's passed at the House of Commons, but it's now in the Senate. Uh, so you'll see a blog on that going out tomorrow and then uh, further updates from there from us. And that would be our, our award-winning Employer's Edge blog, which you can find on our website, www.ccpartners. Thank you for that update, Christina. Here's our next question. If we reduce hours, and as such, an employee is not eligible for benefits as a part-time employee, can we suspend their benefits? So I can jump in on this one again. Um, Presumably, I'm, I'm just going to, to add some context that the reason the hours are being reduced is for reasons related to COVID. If that's the case, then by reducing the employee's hours, you have triggered infectious disease emergency leave, uh, and therefore you must continue their benefits. In another context, if the reduction in hours is completely unrelated to COVID-19, uh, then I would say you need to be looking at the terms of your employment agreement or your collective agreement. And I would guess also the terms of the uh, benefits plan with your insurer. Uh, thanks, Christina. Uh, all good points. If we recall an employee back for January 3rd, 2021, which is when the, uh, the regulation 228-20 is set to expire in its application, but the employee found another job, so for that reason, the employee is not coming back. Are we obligated to give them termination pay? Yeah, so for this one, um, I, think, I think the answer is, I mean, unless there's some other factors here that I'm not considering, the answer is no, because if you call an employee back um, and they don't return for whatever reason, as long as it's not 
accommodation related or they're relying on some other leave of absence, then either you can terminate them for failure to report after a certain amount of time and it's a for cause termination and you don't owe them anything or you can treat them as resigning their employment. So um, if you have a job for them, there's still an employment relationship and they're not coming into work specifically if it's because they're working some other job, then you're not going to be owing any termination pay at that point. Yep. Great, great insight there, Charles. Thank you. All right. Uh, Toronto public housing requires the employer, I believe TPH is Toronto public housing requires the employer to notify staff Toronto public health, Toronto public health, my mistake requires the employer to notify staff when a coworker has a COVID symptom and has been directed to get tested. Is this breaking privacy and confidentiality issues for that employee? Uh, that, that's a good question. What, what we've been advising employers from the outset of the pandemic is, you know, privacy issues kind of have to take a back seat when it comes to a global pandemic and the health and safety uh, uh, concerns for our workplace. Obviously, we need to protect employees privacy and health information to the extent that we can, uh, but there have to be some good faith limits on, on that kind of uh, uh, obligation. Kelsey, I think I cut you off. Uh, do you have some thoughts on this question? I, I was going to say that, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. We've been advising that it's balancing the interests and from the outset, we've said, you know, safety first and deal with the consequences later if there's any question or, or anywhere where you need to um, make a judgment call, especially if we're talking about trying to stop the spread or limit exposure for others, right? And that's part of your occupational health and safety duties. That's part of your, arguably your moral and ethical duties as well. But um, I mean, I, I think what, and I don't know offhand what the specific wording of the requirements from Toronto Public Health, or for that matter, what Toronto Public Housing would have to say about it. But from Toronto Public Health's perspective or any other public health authority, I think the first stop is the obligation is to inform somebody who was in close contact with somebody who tested positive. And it's not necessarily providing specific information about who that person is. It's more about this day and this day, I mean, now in the childcare setting, if you have two people in a room, it's pretty clear pretty quickly if the other person's not there and you're advised of that, but that's what it is. I mean, it is what it is, right? Um, we've had other employers where employees have specifically demanded to be told who was it, who tested positive, and, and that's not the obligation of the employer. The employer's obligation, at least, again, not knowing off the top of my head what this specific uh, TPH requirement is, but generally the requirement is we've got to let people know if they've been exposed or potentially exposed, um, you know, the same way that, say, a gym or a restaurant does with respect to anybody who's eaten there. An employee has tested positive. If you were here on this day and this day between this time, you should, you know, monitor yourself, self-isolate, all those kinds of things. That's where I think it is. Um, perhaps others have other thoughts. No, I think you're absolutely right, Kelsey. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's definitely a balancing act. 
but I, I've certainly been in a, in a position to advise clients, uh, you know, in, in a different industry, but in, in a large uh, workplace, somebody tested or somebody was in close contact with somebody who tested positive. And what we determined was there was only going to be a couple of people in, in the workplace that had close contact with this employee. So those were the ones we uh, told. Uh, it's, it's definitely a, a balancing act, as it so often is for employers in these kind of situations. That actually brings us to the end of our presentation then. So um, I, I want to thank uh, Kelsey, Charles, and Christina uh, for answering the questions uh, in, in this uh, presentation. Uh, and a big thank you to everybody who submitted questions. Um, you know, this is a, a new issue for us. Uh, it's a new issue for the employers and it's a new issue for the lawyers advising them too. Uh, and and we're, we're, you know, we're applying our, our best practices and fundamental principles the best we can and uh, we're, we're kind of figuring it out along the way. Uh, we're all in this together and, uh, you know, we're going to be dealing with this for, for a while longer. And, you know, whenever we get some guidance or new information, we're going to be sharing it with you in blogs or in other webinars on our website at www.ccpartners.ca. Uh, so again, thank you to Kelsey, Charles, and Christina. Uh, thank you to Brandon, our articling student who has been doing the uh, research and compiling some slides and curating our questions in the Q&A portion. Uh, and, and a big thank you to everybody who's uh, attending our webinars. And uh, in particular, a, a big thank you to uh, everybody who's working in the childcare sector, uh, doing their best to keep themselves and, uh, safe and our, and our kids uh, safe in, in you know, providing their care during this uh, uh, time when you know, frankly, we all need some help. Uh, just before we log off, uh, I'm going to ask each of our presenters uh, if there are any final words of wisdom uh, that they want to leave our uh, attendees with. Uh, let's start with uh, Christina. Christina, any last words for our, uh, our, our attendees today? Uh, so I think, again, I just echo some of my earlier points. Uh, just make sure that any decision you're making is is well thought out and uh, based on current and up-to-date information. And, and Mike, as you said, don't hesitate to reach out for assistance, uh, whether that be from us here at CCP or from the really great community of uh, child care centers who are joining us here today. Thanks for that, Christina. Uh, Kelsey, uh, any parting words? Well, uh Again, Christine has managed to capture it all, and uh, I, you know, I want to echo your words, Mike, in terms of thanking everybody for um, their participation today, and obviously in the efforts being made, um, you know, kind of on the ground to keep everything running and and to provide uh, safe care and and everything for the kids. And um, you know, we at CC Partners, you know, we do a lot of work in this sector, as you all know. And uh, we certainly appreciate the unique challenges that face this sector throughout the pandemic, um, including now as we move into perhaps a more challenging um, version of dealing with this as we go through the, the, the cold months with all of the stuff that that brings with it. So um, 
you know, we're, we're here with you. And uh, like Mike said, we're all in this together. Thanks for that, Kelsey. Charles, you're the last up. Any final words? Yeah, again, just picking up on the we're all in this together theme. Um, it's we're, we're happy to be able to put these webinars on for you guys. And um, like Kelsey said, we do a lot of work in the sector. So if there's any way that we can act as a conduit um, for you guys to um, get to know each other or to get in touch with other resources that can be helpful at this time, we're happy to do so. Great. Thank you very much, Charles. Again, on behalf of Charles, Kelsey, Christina, Brandon, and myself, uh, and all of us here at CC Partners, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, stay safe, wear your masks, wash your hands. And uh, we're here. Uh, we're, we're working. We're in the office. We're working from home. We're available anytime to answer your questions. Uh, thank you all so much. And uh, you will be hearing more from us uh, no doubt, uh, constantly. Uh, thank you all so much. And uh, thanks for joining. Take care. Goodbye. Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.